Praise God. Hey, take your Bibles. Join me in the book of Ephesians. We are in chapter 4. We've already made it to chapter 4. But we got a lot to plumb the depths of in this marvelous little book. So we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 4 today. Uh, I am wearing glasses this morning. I wasn't going to say anything about it. It's not that big a deal, I understand, but you never know what a small, minute detail somebody might be distracted by, so I thought I would just mention it. I had a little eye irritation last week. The doctor gave me some ointment. He said, why don't you wear your glasses for about five days? And I said, okay. So not a permanent look for me, but I'm looking forward to not wearing them. Although, I will say what I've discovered about glasses is that for someone who is a communicator, Glasses do afford uh, an extra option in communication. Uh, You can make a rather dramatic gesture, like so. Do you understand what this means? (laughs) See what I'm saying? I have your attention now, right? It doesn't really work with contacts. Do you understand what this means? (laughs) Not quite the same. So you never know when I might bust that out today, all right? Well, let's look now together at the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul's going to give us a little clue as to what lies in store in this passage. He says in verse 1, I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so you've got some phrases in there that give you an indication of what, what he's going to be talking about. Uh, bearing with one another. Uh, maintain the unity of the spirit. The bond of peace. These are phrases that, that speak to the theme uh, that awaits us here. But the goal is in verse 1. He says, I beg you to live a life worthy of the calling. Folks, we are to live a life in accordance with the calling that God has placed upon us. And what I want you to see, first of all, in, this note, in your notes is that we, as Christians, are in the process of growing up. We're growing up. What are we growing up to be? What are we going to look like when we're grown up? The goal is that we look like Jesus. That is the goal of the Christian life, to grow up to look like Christ. Now, where do we go? What is God's designed incubator for this process of growing up to be like Jesus. It's called the church. The church. And I'm not talking about a building. I'm not even talking about a service like the one that you're in right now. I'm talking about this entity that that God has created through the new birth of, of a new people. That's the title of our series. We are a new people. We are the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. We are the church and is within the context of the New Testament church that Christians go to grow up to look like Jesus. But we've got a problem. Because in the church, over the last 50 years, something amazing has taken place. If you looked at the last 200 years, prior to the last 50, there, there, there were a number of people that came to faith in Jesus. But if you added all of them up, they would fall short of the number of those who have come to Christ just in the last 50 years. There's been a tremendous outpouring. People have come in droves to Christianity, and I believe a lot of that has been authentic conversion, but the problem is, what has the church done with those people? 
There, there's a Bible teacher and, and theologian uh, who's in heaven now that I revere named John Stott. And he said this. He said the church is a thousand miles wide but a half an inch deep. And so we need to deepen because we got to be good stewards of the people that come to faith in Christ. How do we deepen? How do we do that? The church has invested historically in four areas to deepen uh, for the growth of, of converts to Christ. We, we've tried to deepen in the area of prayer. We've tried to deepen in the area of Bible study. We've tried to deepen and emphasize witnessing, the sharing of our faith. And we've emphasized community, fellowship with one another. But there are some churches that are like, well, you know, we've only got so much bandwidth. We've only got so much time. There's only so much personnel. Uh, let's just cut to the chase. Tell me which of those four, you know, prayer, Bible study, witnessing, community, which one is the most important? And that's where we'll spend our time. And that's kind of the, the way the church has looked at it. And some people say, well, prayer has got to be the most important. I mean, you know, is, is prayer important? Amen. Absolutely prayer is important. That's where the power comes. That's where the flow of God's power comes. You ever use a garden hose and, and, and you're just spraying away and pretty soon the water just stops and you look back and you got a kink in the hose, right? Prayer is that which unkinks the flow, of God's power. We need prayer. It is powerful. But it, what if that's all you ever did? What if your whole faith experience, it, it revolves around prayer? You just pray. Your, your, your faith is only prayer and experience. What, what kind of faith do you have? You've got an experiential faith. You ever, you ever meet somebody who's like that? They, they become mystic. They get a little Jedi. You ever talk to a Jedi in Christian circles? Kind of weird you out a little bit, doesn't it? So, so maybe there's something else that's important. Some people say no Bible study. That's the ticket. You got to invest in Bible study. Hey, we study the Bible here. We love the Bible here, right? It's very important. It's our foundation. We go verse by verse. We look at the word of God. We have a high view of scripture. If anything is not rooted in scripture, I don't listen to it, okay? But what if the entire Christian existence was revolving around Bible study? What kind of faith would you have? You'd have a very analytical faith. You, you, you'd be puffed up in your knowledge. I mean, you could go on Bible Jeopardy. Is that a thing? That should be a thing. Uh, but that would be about it. You'd just be this analytical Christian. So you need more than that. Some people say, well, it's, just, it's witnessing. Witnessing is the ticket. That's what you got to do. Share, just share the gospel. That's all that matters. Is that important? Amen. We got to win souls. That's what we're here to do is win people to Christ. But what if that's all you did? What if that's, you just stopped, you just shared the gospel, they received, you led them in a prayer of repentance, and then you're like, good luck, and you just walked away. You've just rescued them from a burning building, but you have left them in the cold and the exposure. You gotta move on from there. So there is one thing of those four that if you don't have this one thing, the other three become weird. You need the fourth component, community. Because with community, it is community that makes prayer more powerful. Where two or more are gathered, there's power. The Lord is there. It is community that causes Bible study to become richer and deeper. We learn greater things from the Lord when we do it in community. It is community that turns witnessing into disciple-making. You're not just sharing the gospel, you're making disciples. And that's what the Great Commission is all about. And so if you've got community, all of this begins to make sense. 
If you're surrounded by men and women of faith, you will invest in Bible study. You will invest in prayer. You will invest in witnessing. But it is foundational that Christianity not be lived in a vacuum. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. That's what we're going to talk about today. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you will guide us in our understanding of this text to see the value of community, Lord. Uh, we are in this together. Uh, that word together, we see it throughout the New Testament, God. When you speak of your return, it says then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, Lord, you say that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves Together, we are to pray together, witness together, worship together, study the word together, and yes, we are to grow together. Would you teach us today as we have gathered in this place together? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let us look at this. I'm going to start by asking the question why has God designed us to be in community, in fellowship with one another? And the first reason I'm going to give you in your notes is. That we are made in God's image, and he is personal. You're made in the image of a personal God. He is not impersonal. He is not this nebulous presence in the sky. He models something for us. Look what Paul writes in verse 4. And get your pen ready, because I want you to underline a few phrases here. He says, there's one body and one spirit. Underline one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. Verse 5, one Lord, underline one Lord. One faith, one baptism. Verse 6, one God and Father of all. Underline that whole phrase, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And so what have I had you do there? You have just highlighted the three persons of something called the Trinity. Our God is triune. He is three in one. And uh, he is one being, but there are three persons within him. You understand, if you go back to Genesis 1-1, first verse in your Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word for God, the first time God is ever mentioned in Scripture, the word is Elohim in Hebrew, and that is a plural noun. You understand, there's a suffix on the end of that, Elohim. Anytime you see uh, I am in the English on the end of a Hebrew word, that's a plural word. It's a proper noun. It's the name of God, but it indicates there's more than one person within that Godhead. You understand? And so God says in Genesis 1, 26, he says, let us make man in our image. You see, there's a plural nature to this being, God. We read in John 1 that Christ was present and instrumental at creation. We read in Genesis 1, the Spirit hovers over the surface of the deep. And so they're all there. And so he models for us something. God is in community with himself. And so we are made in his image and we are to be in community. Uh, when, when God says, let us make man in his image, if you look at the creation account, he makes the mountains, he makes the oceans, he says it is good. He makes the animals, it is good. He makes the sea creatures, it is good. The trees, the rocks, it is good, it is good, it is good. He makes man and he says it is not good. For man to be alone. And we know who came next. Whoa, man. Whoa, man. And all the brothers said, amen, right? Yeah, community. Now, I'm not talking about 
I'm joking about this, but I'm not talking about romantic relationship. That is not what I mean. There, there are singles out there perfectly content. God designed you that way. You're fine. You're fine with it. You're okay. There are people who long to be married, and for some reason that hasn't happened for you yet. Nothing wrong with you, okay? You know, but God says there's something about aloneness that is not right. Not about romance, but aloneness that we are meant to be in relationship. We are meant to be in community because he models that. And so Paul's saying that Christian community must be grounded in the fact of a triune God. You understand? And we live that out in community in the church. Now look at verse 7. He says, but each of us, each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so here's reason number two why God has designed for us to be in community. In your notes, community is the best way to celebrate that all Christians are gifted. All Christians are gifted. Now, there's something interesting here. The verse we just read uh, talks about one body. That's the collective. That's the church, see? And now, in this verse, verse 7, he goes from that to this phrase, each of us. That's a shift in how he's speaking about us. He goes from the collective to the individual. He goes from uh, oneness to each of us. He goes from unity to diversity. He goes from the body to Bob or to Betty or to Bubba. Pick your name, all right? So he says each of you. You could write your own name above that phrase, each of us. To Scott is given. To Frank. To Pam is given. Grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. What's he saying? He's saying that every believer is given a certain measure of spiritual grace. Grace, charis in the Greek. What is grace? Is grace something that you can earn? No way, Jose. Grace is a gift. You receive it, okay? But listen, it is a requirement that you receive grace in order for you to receive other gifts, Because you read about spiritual gifts given to the Christian. We read about it in Romans 12, in 1 Corinthians 12. And these gifts in the Greek, they're called charis. Remember, charis is grace. Charismata. Charismata. Sounds like our word. We get charismatic from that, okay? Now, some of you just got excited. Some of you just are, like, terrified. Where are we going with this, Pastor Scott? Hey, don't get nervous. Don't get nervous. I'm just telling you what's in Scripture. These gifts are called charismata, literally grace gifts. Grace gifts. They are gifts given only to the person who has received grace, meaning only Christians have these gifts. And you didn't have them before you became a believer. You, You received them when you received Christ. You weren't born with them. They are not talents. They are not skills that you have honed, that you have crafted. You didn't develop these things. They are gifts. And what this means is that we are uniquely gifted. Every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. You probably have more. But the combination of your gifts is rather unique. We are not, uh, we are, we are unified, but we are not uniform. You understand? We're gifted in unique ways. You think of a person like Billy Graham, what was his gift? Evangelism, right? Probably the greatest of our generation uh, in our lifetime that we ever saw. Uh, You've got people who are gifted in unique ways. Other guys are teachers. I think of David Jeremiah and John MacArthur, tremendous teachers. Some people are leaders. I think of John Maxwell. Uh, There are people I've known personally, great leaders, great administrators. We got a slew of people around here. Your primary gift is hospitality. 
And I can attest to that because I've been the beneficiary of some hospitality since we've been here. And so we've got in this body givers and we've got shepherds and we've got encouragers and we've got exhorters and we've got servants. And there's a whole slew of gifts out there and there are studies on those individual gifts. I don't have time to go through them all one at a time today. Uh, That looks like an interesting study that we'll have to do eventually. But everybody should know how God has gifted them. And maybe you've taken a little test. You know, you've taken a spiritual gifts inventory and you answer the billion questions and then you tally up your score and you see where, which gift you ranked high in. Look, those are fine. I think that's a good place to start. They are not the final word on what your spiritual gift is. But I think the best way to determine your gift is just start serving the Lord. Get in the body. Start serving God. Be in community. And ask people, What do you see God doing in my life? What do you see is my gift? And they can observe it. And I think that is the most natural way to determine what your spiritual gift set is. But here's what you need to know. They're not for your pleasure. You you take joy in using them, but they're not for you. They're not for you to brag about. They're not for you to impress people with. Your gift is meant for the blessing and the edification of the church of the body of Christ. And some gifts are more visible than others, but everybody's got at least one. In the next few verses here, Paul's gonna show us how we got these gifts. And he quotes from Psalm 68, and he likens Christ to a conquering king who who achieves a victory and then brings back the spoils of war and disperses them among his people. Look at verse eight. It says, therefore it says... When he, he's talking about Jesus, when he ascended on high, that's his victory. He led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And he's paraphrasing Psalm 68, which talks about David. David, in the Psalms, David, uh, uh, King David uh, conquered Jerusalem from the Jebusites. And he ascended up that mount where one day the temple would reside. And he took spoils of war and he, he gave gifts to his people, the Israelites, as they set up their capital there in Jerusalem. And so much like the rest of David's life, uh, the future ministry of Christ was mirrored in David. And so this is prophetic of the battle that Christ would win atop Calvary's hill. And that is the, the most incredible, most important battle in human history is his battle and his victory over sin and death and the grave. And so when he won that battle, he ascended to his father and he gave the spoils of his victory to his new people called the church. Jesus told the disciples in the upper room, he said, uh, I have to go away and it's to your advantage that I go away because if I don't go away, the helper will not come. Who is the helper? That's the Holy Spirit. Who is it that gives us spiritual gifts? They're spiritual gifts. They come from The Spirit. So Christ had to ascend after his death, after his resurrection. He ascended, and then the Spirit came. And we who believe by faith are gifted uniquely by the Holy Spirit. In verse 9, Paul says, in saying he ascended, what, what, what does that mean? But that he also had descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Do you have a gift, Christian? Yes, you do. Why? It is because Jesus Christ has conquered. He has conquered. You have been liberated, and your liberator has given you the spoils 
of victory. You are the recipient of what he has done, the, the battle that he has won. Does that make you feel special? It absolutely should. And so Paul says in verse 11, and he gave, here, here is the specificity of these gifts, some of it. He gets into this. He says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip, this is the purpose, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so this is the third thing in your notes. Why are we to be in community? Because community is where you can be equipped to use your gifts. You discover them here and you learn to use them here. You see, my job as a pastor is not to use the congregation to further my career. There's a lot of guys out there, they go and they pastor a church and they're there about three years and they grow the church to a certain size so as to attract the attention of a larger church who then issue a call to that pastor and say, won't you come be our pastor? And then they leave and it's kind of like climbing the corporate ladder. And so we see some of that uh, secular mentality drifting into ministry sometime. Paul says that's not the purpose of leadership. The purpose of a leader is to develop others. To work yourself out of a job, as it were. To develop the giftedness and the skills in them that they may serve. And so my commitment, my responsibility as, as a shepherd in this church is to be a steward of this flock to develop your gifting. So that you can learn how to serve the Lord in the best possible way, you see. And so Paul says in that, let's just kind of break this down. He says, and he gave the apostles... Uh, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So this little section of this verse describes church leadership from the top down. So we're looking at this in the, in, the, in the context of the church. And in Paul's day, he starts with the apostles. Now that refers to Peter, to the twelve, all right? And these are divinely appointed offices. These are very specific positions in the early days of the church. Scripture tells us the church is built on the foundation of the, apostles, of the apostles and the prophets. Okay, So this is not merely a gift. This is an office. These apostles were specific individuals that God chose. They were gifted, but it was an office that God ordained. They are no longer with us on the earth. I don't believe that apostles in the sense of Peter and the Twelve exist today. All right, I don't believe in that kind of apostolic ministry. Now, there are small a apostles. There is a gift of, a, of apostleship that some of you may have. It, is, it does not carry the office and the authority of the 12, you understand? But you are an apostle in the sense that you have the gift of missions. Missionaries often have this gift. The word apostolos in the Greek means messenger. And so it's the gift of missions. That's what that is. Uh, today, uh, Paul talks about prophets. These, he's referring to the people that God used to write the scripture. They wrote what we call the canon of scripture. God imparted, inspired them via his spirit to put pen to paper, transcribe the thoughts of God. Uh, those people do not exist today either in that same sense. We've got prophets today, but they're not prophets with a capital P. Because God is not revealing fresh new revelation. If he were, we better have a lot of blank pages at the back of our Bible and write down what prophets are saying because that's coming from God and we need to transcribe it for our, for our benefit. It's not happening today. The, the canon is closed. God's word is complete. But we do have small p prophets today. What does that translate to? Well, we're not, we're not foretelling. We're forthtelling. 
We are proclaiming what God has said. There is a word from the Lord, and it is in complete compliance and agreement with his word, his written word. And so we do so. Every time a guy opens the Bible and preaches, I just spoke on Wednesday night about abortion. And I used Jeremiah to do it, the words of the prophet. And I repeated the words of the prophet, broke that down for you guys. I tried to do so with boldness and confidence. That is, that is prophetic in that sense. But I'm not hearing directly from God. God is speaking through his word and he can speak to you through his word as well. And when you proclaim that, you are, you are working out of your gift of prophecy today. Do you understand? We've got some other gifts that we see here. Uh, he's talking about uh, shepherds. And teacher, well, first he talks about evangelists. These are your Billy Grahams, your Luis Palau's, your, your Greg Laurie's. But you could be an evangelist even if you don't have a large platform. If, if you don't have a household name, you can be an evangelist with your coworker, with your family, with your classmate. You are someone who just very naturally gives the, the gospel. That's the gift of evangelism at work. Uh, there are shepherds and teachers. Many of these people become pastors in churches, I have some of these gift, uh, gifts myself. You've got guys on staff here. Mike Smith, Ken Smith, Sean Greeson, Billy Gillespie. These are shepherds. These are teachers in our midst. What is the job of a shepherd? Is it to beat the sheep? No, no, it's to feed the sheep. You, you are the sheep. My job as your shepherd is to feed you. What did Jesus tell Peter? He said, Peter, feed my sheep. Do you love me? feed my sheep and we feed the sheep right i i am to be concerned with the welfare of the sheep who are the sheep believers right now i love unbelievers i i want to witness to unbelievers they need to hear the gospel we share the gospel here if there are unbelievers in our midst I pray that they hear the gospel, receive Christ, but I am not going to tailor my message from the word of God so that it is palatable and understandable to unbelievers because it does not often concern them, frankly. And so there is a preoccupation with modern day pastors that we've got to dumb everything down for the, for the unchurched. That is not my job. My job is to feed the sheep and to equip the saints. Paul says to equip the saints. Who are the saints? That's the church. For what? For the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ. And so what does a strong, built-up body look like? It is a mature body. Uh, when my oldest son was very little, he was a little scrawny kid, you know, but he grew up and he became muscular. He became athletic and all that. And he kind of puts dad to shame walking around the house. He's mature. He's, he's been equipped with the body to, to, to do the work on the football field or whatever athletic thing he takes part in. So this word equip in the Greek is katartismos. There are two meanings, and I'll give you these meanings. The first meaning for this word equip is, is in your notes, mending. Mending. Now sometimes that refers to, to the mending of something that has been hurt. Are there hurt people that come into our church? Yeah, mending. That's what you know, we think of mending. You think of that old song. How do you mend a broken heart? Remember that? I didn't know I'd hear Bee Gees this morning, Scott. Yeah. Some people need mending. They've been hurt. Sometimes that hurt is their own doing. You know, God has rescued you out of a life of immorality. You know, you've subjected yourself 
uh, to sinful things and it's taken a toll on you. You need to be restored. You need to be mended. Sometimes you're a victim of abuse. You come from a context of, of a home where you were abused verbally, physically, emotionally. Sometimes it's been in, in another church. Uh, you've been abused by authority figures in that church. You need to be mended. What's the point of the mending though? Is it to make you feel better? Is it so you don't have bad memories or you don't think about it anymore? No, that's not the point here. The point of this mending is really found in another use of that word. You see in Matthew, Jesus is at the Sea of Galilee and he sees James and John. What are they doing? They're fishermen. They are mending their nets. Same word, katartismos. They're mending their nets. What is a net? It's, it's a tool. It's a tool of the fishermen. To do what? To catch fish. They're mending the nets. Why? So they look pretty? Like a throw, like grandma's throw on a sofa? No, it's a, it's a tool to catch fish. Hey, what are you for, Christian? You're a fisher of men. You are to catch souls, right? And so we come in here and we get mended so that we can be productive, so that we can be useful. So that's the first word. Second word for this word equipped is reproducing. Reproducing, meaning you replicate your faith in others. We are intended by God to become effective, to disciple, to reproduce spiritually. And we use our various giftings uh, to do that. And it's so exciting when you, when you can disciple someone, you come along a new believer. Nothing more exciting than a new believer. New Christians are the best. They're so much fun. They're just on fire, man. And that's when you got to disciple them. Because that energy, that zeal is there. They want to go out. They want to share. Man, new believers are witness to a tree stump. They don't care, man. They want to go tell all their friends. They, they get really annoying to their old running buddies because they just want to share the hope that is in them. But that's when they need a, a discipler to come alongside them, to guide them. If they get out of community, that zeal goes with them and it's wayward and they can run off course and they can get into trouble. I heard about a young man, he was a new convert at a church, he was just on fire. And he was in the community of that church, and then he decided he'd go off on his own. He's going to go serve God on his own. He's going to be a one-man army for God. And he left the context of that church. Well, he just kind of fell off the map, spiritually. He went nowhere, he kind of fizzled out. He had a mentor back at the church that was concerned for him, reached out to him, called him, said, hey, I'd like you to come see me. So this young guy goes over to this older Christian's house and they're sitting there. It's a cold winter's day. They're standing in front of, they're sitting in front of the, uh, a coal stove. And the young man's just talking. He's like, I, I don't know what happened. I just, I had the fire and then I, I don't know. I just, I just lost the passion. I can't explain it. I, I don't know where it went. I just, the things of God just don't really matter to me anymore. And while he's talking, the older Christian reaches down into that coal stove with a pair of tongs and he picks up a, a coal that was glowing red and he sets that coal on top of that stove. And as the young man's talking, he's watching this little coal turn a cool blue. And then he stops. And the older man picks it up with the tongs, puts it back in the, in the stove next to a red hot coal. And pretty soon that cool blue turns a glowing red once again. And the young man got it. He had gotten away from the body. And he'd cooled off because we are designed to be in community, to be surrounded by growing men and women of God. We are not just uh, to attend church. It's about doing the truth of the, of the gospel, doing the truth of the Bible. What is the Great Commission? 
Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all I have commanded you. Did I leave something out there? Teaching them, oh yes, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. To obey all I have commanded you. See, to observe means to obey. We've got to, to our, it is a mandate. You see, do you understand what this means? This means that reproducing yourself is a vital task of the Christian life. You've got to teach people. You've got to pour into them. If you're not doing that, you're not fulfilling the Great Commission, and you are not building up the body as you are implored by Paul to do right here. And the next thing in your notes, the next reason that God has designed us to be in community is number four, God evaluates a church according to the combined maturity of its total members. The combined maturity, verse 13, Paul says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul rates churches not based on their building. They didn't have buildings back then. If he walked in here today I mean, I love our building, but this is not, Paul would not look at this and go, well, this is a successful church right here. He wouldn't care. He would not look at the worship team, as talented as they are, and as wonderful a job as they do in leading us in worship, that would not be his criteria for a healthy, successful church. He would not look at me and go, man, that guy could teach the word. He would not say that. That's not his measure. All those things are good, by the way. I give glory to God for for anything that we do here, uh, that we do well, or that we attempt to do well, but the measure, the criteria that, Christ, that Paul would look at is what is the totality of your believers, of your body? Are they quality? Are they growing? Are they healthy? Are they replicating? He would say, show me your weakest believers and I will, I will give you my perception of the health of your church. That's what he would look at. And so we've got to make that our criteria. He says, let me break this down. Looking at the, at the components of verse 13, he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Here are the components of maturity. The first one is, in your notes, unity in belief. Are we unified in what we believe? That means we don't have a bunch of pluralistic error. There's not a lot of uh, divergence in how we believe, in how we interpret the scriptures, at least as far as the essentials are concerned. Uh, it needs to be such that if somebody asks anybody in our body, who is Jesus, we could tell them and we, it, would, it would be the same. What is the gospel? And we could articulate that in the same way. And we, we rely on essential doctrine. We're all convinced of essential doctrine. We all believe This is the ideal, that Jesus Christ is God's son. He is the second member of the Trinity. He came down to this earth. He was born of a virgin so as to not be corrupted by humanity and sin. He died on a cross as a substitute, sacrifice. He took my sin. I come to that believing by faith. I receive a free gift that I can't earn. I am placed by his spirit into his body. He declares me to be righteous. I am sealed by his spirit for all eternity. And one day I will be raised to reign with him forever. That is what we need to agree on. There is a reason that uh, churches, the early churches, memorized creeds. It's so that they had this unified system of belief. I believe in God, the Father, almighty maker of heaven and of earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. I mean, this is why, it wasn't just to be, uh, to memorize things by rote. 
You know, it, it's, to, it's to have a unity of belief. And yet when I look at the faces of believers, often I see confusion, I see a deep lack of understanding of doctrine. And I think one reason may be the only time some of you open your Bible is right here. On Sunday morning, for about 40 minutes, in a room full of a ton of people, uh, it's not enough. It's not enough. You're not going to grow. Doing it one time on Sunday morning in a room this size. You need to do it consistently. And let me add, yes, do it on your own, but do it with other people. Get with, get with a buddy. Somebody to hold you accountable. And you hold them accountable. And iron sharpening iron. And maybe you get with a small group. We have small groups here. Now, we're going to have more. We're going to ramp that up. You know why? Because that is valuable and biblical. And we will make it a priority and, and be intentional about it here at the Lamb's Chapel. But we are here to open this amazing book, which is like a Ferrari with 700 horsepower, and unleash it. And tell each other what it says and see one another's lives changed in the process. But we are to be united in our doctrine. The second thing that's a component of maturity is that we be in relationship with Jesus. He says, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We gotta know him. It's a knowledge of him, but it's not a... It's not an informational form of knowledge. It's a relational knowledge. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Jeremiah says, you know, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the strong man boast in his strength or the rich man boast in his riches, but let he who boasts boast in this, that there is a God who understands and knows me. To know him, to be in relationship. It's not the Greek word uh, gnosis, it's epignosis. It's an experiential, direct, personal knowledge. What's the difference between those two concepts? Uh, Scott, do you know Tom Brady? Well, yeah, I know. Sure, Tom Brady, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, legendary quarterback, uh, seven Super Bowls, amazing that he won seven. He was played in 10. Come on. I mean, he could be the greatest of all time. I've gotten in fights about that. And I don't, need, I don't have a dog in that hunt. Couldn't care less about the Patriots or the Buccaneers. But I mean, come on, seven rings. Hello. Yeah, yeah, no, Tom Brady. Yeah, I know Tom Brady. Oh, wow, you're friends with Tom Brady? Oh, no, no, I'm not friends with Tom Brady. No, he didn't know me, but I know who he is. Oh, I see. Do you know Chris Tomlin? Yeah, yeah, Chris Tomlin, sure. Great worship songwriter, song leader, absolutely. We sing his songs all the time in church. Yeah, he's, he's great. In fact, I've been to his concerts. I met him after a concert one time, shook his hand. Super nice guy. Yeah, no, yeah, it's Chris Tomlin. Oh, wow, so he knows you. Oh, no, no, he wouldn't, he wouldn't know me from a hoot owl, no. But I, yeah, I know who he is. Scott, Scott Grimm, do you happen to know a guy named Caleb Grimm? There's a guy named Caleb Grimm. He's a member of a Christian band that I tend to follow sometimes called Anthem Lights. He's got a wife named Kelsey. Caleb and Kelsey, they're online and they sing. They do songs and stuff. Are you, do you know Caleb Grimm? Yes, I do. He's my baby brother. I know Caleb Grimm. I sure do. My little bro. I've, in fact, I've changed his diapers. Yeah, not, not recently. But yeah. No, I've known him his whole life, absolutely. We've traveled the country together. We've laughed and cried together. We watched the Dallas Cowboys together, which is about the same as laughing and crying. <laughs> yes, I know him. 
I know him about as well as anybody. Epigenosis, you see, personal knowledge. Are you in relationship? Do you know Jesus Christ? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, yeah, I know who he is. No, no, do you know him? Well, I've read about him. Do you know him? Well, I prayed a prayer at church one time, and I, do you know him? What's that mean? It means that you and I are in community. Maybe we're in a small group together, and I can ask you, hey, what's the Lord doing in your life? And you can tell me. Oh, man, let me tell you what the Lord showed me this week. I was reading in such and such, and here's, here's what he spoke to my heart. Here's what the Holy Spirit's doing. Here's what he's doing in my life. Here's what he's doing in my church. Here's what he's doing in my ministry. Here's what he's doing in my family. Epigenosis. And then third, a component of maturity is exhibiting Christ-likeness. You're not just to know him. You are to be an extension of him in this world. Uh, Paul says, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Uh, you are to be the fullness of Christ in this world. Christian, the word Christian means little Christ. You're the only Jesus some people will ever come into contact with. It better be an accurate representation. We are to be an extension of him. That's why he uses phrases like he is the cornerstone, we're the temple. He is the potter, we're the clay. He is the bridegroom, we're the bride, one flesh. He is the shepherd, we're the sheep. We're attached to him. We follow him. We know his voice. You are to be an extension of him. And then the fourth component in your notes is that we're to be mutually vigilant. Mutually vigilant. In verse 14, Paul says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. When you have children, small children, you must instill in them uh, a cautiousness. You must instill in them an instinctiveness to not talk to strangers, to not trust just anybody. Don't get in a car with someone you don't know. Don't answer the door if mommy and daddy aren't there, you understand. It's, it's to build in them something so as they mature, they will have discernment. Folks, we are not to be like little children in our faith. We are to be mature so that we are not duped, so that we are not deceived by every wind of doctrine that sweeps through the church. And there are more all the time. There is some messed up stuff that comes through the church. And it's destructive. And we have to remain steadfast. We do not adhere to anything that comes down the pike to anything that we hear from Oprah or Dr. Oz or whoever it is. It doesn't, you gotta test the spirits, weigh everything. Even if it looks good, sounds good, you open the Bible and you, you compare. It's been said, don't wed yourself to the spirit of this age and you'll be a widow in five years if you do because the age changes. Be sober-minded, Peter says, 1 Peter 5. And then Paul goes on to verse 15. He says, rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We grow up to look like Jesus, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The whole purpose that you are maturing, that you are utilizing the gifts that God has given you is that you equip others and you grow up the body. You help the rest of the body mature. You see, as we wrap this up, there are two desired outcomes of being in community with other believers. First, 
in your notes that I might become more like Christ in this relationship. And then that they might become more like Christ in this relationship. Your relationship serves that you become like Jesus and that those with whom you interact become like Jesus. You can't be focused on yourself and what you want to get out of it. What did Kennedy say? Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Uh, Paul beat him to that sentiment in the context of the church. Don't just come here looking for what you get out of it. You come looking for what you can contribute as far as the spiritual health and well-being of others. Love is living for someone else's good. That's a good thing to remember in marriage, isn't it? And I could get on board with that and say, yes, amen. And then I could forget it in a heartbeat. I remember the day of my wedding. Just to be candid here, okay? Now, I don't think I was consciously thinking this, but I know, I know me especially back then, and I know what I was feeling. I, I was probably feeling, as I stood there in my little tux at the, at the front of the altar, waiting for my bride to come in, I, I, can, I can just imagine I was thinking, what a great day. Man, yeah, she and I have, have such a shared passion. I mean, I love me. <laughs> and pretty soon she's gonna come down that aisle and she's gonna say that she loves me. Well, that's just a win-win right there. I mean, that's just a good business decision, you know? But how far is that going to get you? Well, about five minutes into the honeymoon, when we're fighting over which excursion on the cruise to take, you know, you realize you are a selfish, selfish man. And hopefully you mature and you outgrow that, but you still fall back into it. I mean, I still tick her off. It's been 21 years, you know? But relationship is designed by God to grow you so that you put you on the bottom shelf because love is living for someone else's good and that's how it is to be in the church because God constantly uses relationship to show us in this body how shallow we really are and it's in the context of community that God is rescuing you from yourself so that others can be rescued from you. Let's pray. Father God, I just ask your blessing upon our time together. Would you, uh, would you go with us as we depart from this place to take with us a spirit and an understanding of how you've designed for us to thrive, to grow, to mature, that it's not about us. It's all about you and it's about your body, that we are a part of something beautiful that you ordained. May we contribute to it, Lord, in ways that you uh, have long ago planned Work prepared well in advance as Ephesians teaches. And may we use the gifts that you've given us to accomplish your will. In Christ's name we pray, amen.